Chapter 7 of the Story of the Atlantic Cable. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wayne Anderson, Chelsea, Quebec. The Story of the Atlantic Cable by Sir Charles Bright. Chapter 7 The Renewed Effort. That evening the four vessels lay together side by side, and there was such a stillness in the sea and air as would have seemed remarkable even on an inland lake. On the Atlantic, and after what had been so lately experienced, it seemed almost unnatural. The boats were out and the officers were passing from ship to ship, telling their experiences of the voyage and forming plans for the morrow. The captain of the Agamemnon had a sorry tale to tell, the strain to which she had been subjected had opened her waterways. Then again, one of the crew, a marine, had been literally frightened out of his wits and remained crazy for some days. One man had his arm fractured in two places, and another his leg broken. The Niagara, on the other hand, had weathered the gale splendidly, though it had been a hard and anxious time with her, as well as with the smaller craft. She had lost her jib-boom, and the boys she carried for suspending the cable had been washed from her sides. No man knew where. After taking stock of things generally, a start was made to repair the various damages, but the shifting of the upper part of the main coil on the Agamemnon into a hopeless tangle entailed recoiling a considerable length of cable, a no light task, occupying several days. On the morning of Saturday, June 26th, all the preparations were completed for making the splice and once more commencing the great undertaking. In the words of the Times representative, the end of the Niagara's cable was sent on board the Agamemnon, the splice was made, a bent sixpence put in for luck, and at 2.50 Greenwich time it was slowly lowered over the side and disappeared forever. The weather was cold and foggy with a stiff breeze and dismal sort of sleet, and as there was no cheering or manifestation of enthusiasm of any kind, the whole ceremony had a most funereal effect, and seemed as solemn as if it were burying a marine, or some other mortuary task of the kind equally cheerful and enlivening. As it turned out, however, it was just as well that no display took place, as everyone would have looked uncommonly silly when the same operation came to be repeated as it had to be an hour or so afterward. It is needless to make a long story longer, so I may state at once that when each ship had paid out three miles or so, and they were getting well apart, the cable, which had been allowed to run too slack, broke on board the Niagara, owing to its overriding and getting off the pulley leading onto the machine. The break was of course known instantly, both vessels put about and returned, a fresh splice was made and again lowered at half-past seven. According to arrangement, 150 fathoms were veered out from each ship, and then all stood away on their course, at first at two miles an hour, and afterward at four. Everything then went well, the machine working beautifully, at 32 revolutions per minute, the screw at 26, the cable running out easily at five and five and a half miles an hour, the ship going four. The greatest strain upon the dynamometer was 2,500 pounds, and this was only for a few minutes, the average giving only 2,000 pounds and 2,100 pounds. At midnight, 21 nautical miles had been paid out, 
and the angle of the cable with the horizon had been reduced considerably. At about half-past three, forty miles had gone, and nothing could be more perfect and regular than the working of everything, when suddenly, at 3.40 a.m. on Sunday, the 27th, Professor Thompson came on the deck and reported a total break of continuity, that the cable, in fact, had parted, and was believed at the time from the Niagara. The Agamemnon was instantly stopped, and the brakes applied to the machinery, in order that the cable paid out might be severed from the mass in the hold, and so enable Professor Thompson to discover by electrical tests at about what distance from the ship the fracture had taken place. Unfortunately, however, there was a strong breeze on at the time, with a rather heavy swell, which told severely upon the cable, and before any means could be taken to ease entirely the motion on the ship, it parted a few fathoms below the stern wheel, the dynamometer indicating a strain of nearly 4,000 pounds. In another instant, a gun and a blue light warned the Valorous of what had happened and roused all on board the Agamemnon to a knowledge that the machinery was silent and that the first part of the Atlantic cable had been laid and effectually lost. The great length of cable on board both ships allowed a large margin for such mishaps as these, and the arrangement made before leaving England was that the splices might be renewed and the work recommenced till each ship had lost 250 miles of wire, after which they were to discontinue their efforts and return to Queenstown. Accordingly, after the breakage on Sunday morning, the ship's heads were put about, and for the fourth time the Agamemnon again began the weary work of beating up against the wind for that everlasting rendezvous which we seemed destined to be always seeking. Apart from the regret with which all regarded the loss of the cable, there were other reasons for not wishing the cruise to be thus indefinitely prolonged, since there had been a break in the continuity of the fresh provisions, and for some days previously in the wardroom the pièce de résistance had been inflammatory looking more so, salted to an astonishing pitch, and otherwise uneatable, for it was beef which had been kept three years beyond its warranty for soundness, and to which all were then reduced. It was hard work beating up against the wind, so hard indeed that it was not till noon of Monday the 28th that we again met the Niagara, and while all were waiting with impatience for her explanation of how she broke the cable, she electrified everyone by running up the interrogatory, How did the cable part? This was astounding. As soon as the boats could be lowered, Mr. Cyrus Field, with the electricians from the Niagara, came on board, and a comparison of logs showed the painful and mysterious fact that at the same second of time each vessel discovered that a total fracture had taken place at a distance of certainly not less than ten miles from each ship, as well as could be judged, at the bottom of the ocean. The logs on both sides were so clear as to the minute of time and as to the electrical tests showing not merely leakage or defective insulations of the wire, but a total fracture, that there was no room left on which to rest a moment's doubt of the certainty of this most disheartening fact. That, of all the many mishaps connected with the Atlantic Telegraph, this was the worst and most disheartening, since it proved that, after all that human skill and science can effect to lay the wire down with safety has been accomplished, there may be some fatal obstacles to success at the bottom of the ocean which can never be guarded against, 
for even the nature of the peril must always remain a secret and unknown as the depths in which it is to be encountered was the bottom covered with a soft coating of ooze in which it had been said the cable might rest undisturbed for years as on a bed of down or were there after all sharp pointed rocks lying on that supposed plateau of maury berryman and damon these were the questions that some of those on board were asking but there was no use in further conjecture or in repining over what had already happened though the prospect of success appeared to be considerably impaired it was generally considered that there was but one course left and that was to splice again and make another and what was fondly hoped would be a final attempt accordingly no time was lost in making the third splice which was lowered over into two thousand fathoms of water at seven o'clock by a ship's time the same night before steaming away as the agamemnon was now getting very short of coal and the two vessels had some one hundred miles of surplus cable between them it was agreed that if the wire parted again before the ships had gone each one hundred miles from the rendezvous they were to return and make another splice and as the agamemnon was to sail back the niagara it was decided was to wait eight days for her appearance if on the other hand the one hundred miles had been exceeded the ships were not to return but each make the best of its way to queenstown with this understanding the ships again parted and with the wire dropping steadily down between them the niagara and agamemnon steamed away and were soon lost in the cold raw fog which had hung over the rendezvous ever since the operations had commenced the cable as before paid out beautifully and nothing could have been more regular and more easy than the working of every part of the apparatus at first the ship's speed was only two knots the cable going three and three and a half with a strain of fifteen hundred pounds the horizontal angle averaging as low as seven and the vertical about sixteen by and by however the speed was increased to four knots the cable going five at a strain of two thousand pounds and an angle of from twelve to fifteen at this rate it was kept with trifling variations throughout the whole of monday night and neither mr bright mr canning nor mr clifford ever quitted the machines for an instant toward the middle of the night while the rate of the ship continued the same the speed at which the cable paid out slackened nearly a knot while the dynamometer indicated as low as thirteen hundred pounds this change could only be accounted for on the supposition that the water had shallowed to a considerable extent and that the vessel was in fact passing over some submarine ben nevis or skiddaw after an interval of about an hour the strain and rate of progress on the cable again increased while the increase of the vertical angle seemed to indicate that the wire was sinking down the side of a declivity beyond this there was no variation throughout monday night or indeed through tuesday the upper deck coil which had weighed so heavily upon the ship and still more heavily upon the minds of all during the past storms was fast disappearing and by twelve at midday on tuesday the twenty ninth seventy-six miles had been paid out to something like sixty miles progress of the ship warned by repeated failures many of those on board scarcely dared hope for success still the spirits of all rose as the distance widened between the ships things were going in splendid style in such splendid style that stock had gone up nearly one hundred per cent 
those who had leisure for sleep were able to dream about cable-laying and the terrible effects of too great a strain. The first question which such as these ask on awakening is about the cable, and on being informed that it is all right, satisfaction ensues until the appearance of breakfast, when it is presumed this feeling is intensified. For those who do not derive any particular pleasure from the mere asking of questions, the harmonious music made by the paying-out machine during its revolutions supplies the information. Then again, the electrical continuity, after all the most important item, was perfect, and the electricians reported that the signals passing between the ships were eminently satisfactory. The door of the testing room is almost always shut, and the electricians pursue their work undisturbed, but it is impossible to exclude that spirit of scientific inquiry which will satiate its thirst for information even through a keyhole. Further, the weather was all it could be wished for. Indeed, had the poet, who was so anxious for life on the ocean wave and a home on the rolling deep, been aboard, he would have been absolutely happy, and perhaps even more desirous, for a fixed habitation. The only cause that warranted anxiety was that it was evident the upper deck coil would be finished by about eleven o'clock at night, when the men would have to pass along in darkness the great loop which formed the communication between that and the coil in the main hold. This was most unfortunate, but the operation had been successfully performed in daylight during the experimental trip in the Bay of Biscay, and every precaution was now taken that no accident should occur. At nine o'clock, by ship's time, when 146 miles had been paid out and about 112 miles distance from the rendezvous accomplished, the last flake but one of the upper deck coil came in turn to be used. In order to make it easier in passing to the main coil, the revolutions of the screw were reduced gradually by two revolutions at a time from 30 to 20, while the paying-out machine went slowly from 36 to 22. At this rate, the vessel going three knots and the cable three and a half, the operation was continued with perfect regularity, the dynamometer indicating the strain of 2,100 pounds. Suddenly, without an instant's warning, or the occurrence of any single incident that could account for it, the cable parted when subjected to a strain of less than a ton. The gun that again told the valorous of this fatal mishap brought all on board the Agamemnon rushing to the deck, for none could believe the rumor that had spread like wildfire about the ship. But there stood the machinery, silent and motionless, while the fractured end of the wire hung over the stern wheel, swinging loosely to and fro. It seemed almost impossible to realize the fact that an accident so instantaneous and irremediable should have occurred and at a time when all seemed to be going so well. Of course, a variety of ingenious suggestions were soon afloat, showing most satisfactorily how the cable must and ought to have broken. There was a regular gloom that night on board the Agamemnon, for from first to last the success of the expedition had been uppermost in the thoughts of all, and all had labored for it early and late, contending with every danger and overcoming every obstacle and disaster that had marked each day with an earnestness and devotion of purpose that is really beyond all praise. Immediately after the mishap, a brief consultation was held by those in charge 
on board the Agamemnon, and, as it was shown that they had only exceeded the distance from the rendezvous by fourteen miles, and that there was still more cable on board the two vessels than the amount with which the original expedition last year was commenced, it was determined to try for another chance and return to the rendezvous, sailing there, of course, for Mr. Brown, the chief engineer, as ultra-zealous in the cause as a board of directors, guarded the coal bunkers like a very dragon, lest, if in coming to paying out the cable again, steam should run short, thereby endangering the success of the whole undertaking. For the fifth time, therefore, the Agamemnon's head went about, and after twenty days at sea she again began beating up against the wind for the rendezvous to try, if possible, to recommence her labors. The following day the wind was blowing from the southwest, with mist and rain, and Thursday, July 1st, gave everyone the most unfavorable opinion of July weather in the Atlantic. The wind and sea were both high, the wet fog so dense that one could scarcely see the mastheads, while the damp cold was really biting. Altogether it was an atmosphere of which a Londoner would have been ashamed, even in November. Later in the day, a heavy sea got on, the wind increased without dissipating the fog, and it was double-reefed topsails, with pitching and rolling as before. However, the upper deck coil of 250 tons being gone, the Agamemnon was as buoyant as a lifeboat, and no one cared how much she took to kicking about, though the cold-wet fog was a miserable nuisance, penetrating everywhere and making the ship wet inside as out. What made the matter worse was that in such weather there seemed no chance of meeting the Niagara unless she ran into us, when cable-laying would have gone on wholesale. In order to avoid such a contretemps, and also to inform the valorous of our whereabouts, guns were fired, fog-bells rung, and the bugler stationed forward to warn the other vessels of our vicinity. Friday was the ditto of Thursday, and Saturday worse than both together, for it almost blew a gale, and there was a heavy sea on. On Sunday the 4th it cleared, and the Agamemnon, for the first time during the whole cruise, reached the actual rendezvous and fell in with the Valorous, which had been there since Friday the 2nd, but the fog must have been even thicker there than elsewhere, for she had scarcely seen herself, much less anything else, till Sunday. During the remainder of that day and Monday, when the weather was very clear, both ships cruised over the place of meeting, but neither the Niagara nor Gorgon was there, though day and night the lookout for them was constant and incessant. It was evident, then, that the Niagara had rigidly, but most unfortunately, adhered to the mere letter of the agreement regarding the one hundred miles, and after the last fracture had at once turned back for Queenstown. On Tuesday the 6th, therefore, as the dense fogs and winds set in again, it was agreed between the Valorous and the Agamemnon to return once more to the rendezvous. But as usual the fog was so thick that the whole American navy might have been cruising there unobserved. So the search was given up, and at eight o'clock that night the ship's head was turned for cork, and under all sail the Agamemnon at last stood homeward. The voyage home was made with ease and swiftness, considering the lightness of the wind, the trim of the ship, and that she had only steamed three days, and at midday on Tuesday, July 12th, the Agamemnon cast anchor in Queenstown Harbor. Having met with more dangerous weather and encountered more mishaps, 
than often falls the lot of any ship in a cruise of thirty-three days. Thus ends the most arduous and dangerous expedition that has ever been experienced in connection with cable work. It, at any rate, had the advantage of supplying the public with some exciting reading in the columns of the Times, whose graphic descriptions were much appreciated. The Niagara had reached Queenstown as far back as July 5th, Having found that they had run out 109 miles when continuity ceased, those in charge considered that, in order to carry out their instructions, they should return at once to the above port, which they did. On the two ships meeting at Queenstown, discussion immediately took place as to the cause of the cessation of continuity, and regarding the course taken by the Niagara in returning home so promptly. The non-arrival of the Agamemnon till nearly a week later had been the cause of much alarm regarding her safety. End of chapter 7 Recording by Wayne Anderson, Chelsea, Quebec